0: discuss anything and everything disney i'm angela and i'm joan on today's episode we're shining a little light on the sherman brothers who may be a name you've heard may not be even if you've heard of them i feel like they've done so much more than you know about because i feel like looking to
1: like realize how what all contribute contributions they have made to disney to disney
0: movies theme parks tv everything it's I was amazed reading some of this I stuff. mean,
1: to be honest with you, they, they should be a household name because they are responsible for one of the greatest earworms of all of history.
0: Which one's that? It's a small world. It's a small world. Yeah. Well, I mean, they have a lot. I mean, there's there's so many of them. Yeah, there's so, a
1: lot. But I feel like even if you're not a Disney person...
0: You know it's a small you world. You know it's
1: a small world. People think that song's so annoying. I don't. I love it. But, you know, there's a lot of people who do.
0: Yeah, so we're, we're going to talk a little bit today about... Their kind of history, their career, uh, how they started working with Disney, again, kind of all of the things they've worked on uh, for Disney, and again, they're such an integral part to the Disney company. I think it's it's kind of good idea to reflect back on that. Disney's reflecting mm-hmm. back on their hundred years. I think you know a lot of the successes in movies and theme parks and stuff might might not have had if you didn't have these catchy songs that they wrote.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that. I mean, I think you can argue that Disney. Without Disney's melodies and songs, you wouldn't have
0: Disney. True. All right. But before we get into that, we're going to cover the Disney news of the week. So we're going to stick with Walt Disney World this week for the news. So the first piece of news is that the new Moana Journey of Water attraction has begun testing. So they actually had a a pretty cool post about this on social media where they said the Imagineers are actually training the water on how to interact with guests, which... I think it's kind of a, a playful thing because in Moana, the water is essentially its own character. The ocean is kind of another character on how it brings Moana, the heart of Te and stuff. And, you know, she throws it away and it kind of comes back to her. So,
1: so what does the water get for positive reinforcement? Like I'm imagining dog training. So what do you give the water? Like seashells? Maybe.
0: I'm not sure. But Sea creatures? Yeah, I, I don't know. But it is interesting on yeah, how, how they framed it like that, that they're training the water on how to interact with guests. Uh, but yeah, essentially it, it's in testing, which I think is good news because you know it was announced it would be opening sometime later this year. But it seems like maybe they're a little bit closer to opening it, which will be nice to have something new in epcot where you don't have those construction walls there anymore Um, but then i think the downside is this is probably the last new thing we're getting outside of tiana um this is kind of really the last one of the last new things we're going to have at the theme parks down there for at least a while till they announce something but who knows how long that will take them to build it
1: right well do you think if they finish early that they will open it as soon as they're Ready? Or oh, yeah,
0: I mean, they haven't again, they haven't announced a date. It was just sometime later this year. So I think this means we're we're probably, you know, within the next uh, few months that it's going to be opening. And then the other piece of news is some changes to genie plus. So Disney announced a few months ago whenever they were saying in twenty twenty four the dining plan was coming back and that, the reservations weren't going to be needed for date based tickets. That they were looking at ways to simplify the process. And, th- and they kind of hinted at some changes coming to Genie Plus. Well, one of the changes uh, that we're getting is you can now buy individual parks. So before it was a price per day that covered whether you went to one park or all four parks. So now you can actually select Genie Plus for either all of the parks or an individual park. So what this does is this helps people who aren't park hopping save a little bit of money. Um, So some sample pricing, what it seems like so far for the first couple days that it's out is that it's around, you know, 16 or $17 a day for like an animal kingdom. Uh, Magic Kingdom is a little bit more, I think that's closer to $20. And then the full genie plus if you want it for all of the parks it's in that like 25 30 range. And now you can buy two individual parks which I don't necessarily know. I was going to
1: say it doesn't really make sense. Yeah, it's cost from, efficient, yeah. From the way that the prices were at least looking in the initial numbers, it didn't it wasn't very much more than I think it seemed like Magic Kingdom was usually the most expensive. Yeah, Magic
0: Kingdom's definitely the most expensive and it makes sense. They have the most attractions. Right. You have you have the most to save there in right. terms of time
1: the cost to get all of the parks seem to only like range like 5 to 10 dollars more but again i don't know if there's going to be more variance
0: yeah if you buy two individual parks you're going to pay more to than over, yeah. than just buying all four parks so yeah it's it's a bit of a change i think it's it's good from a point where you can save a few dollars if you're only going to one park and you don't have a park hopper. But on kind of the other side, it also makes it now more confusing because now you have another level of Genie Plus. So you have, do you want Genie Plus for an individual park or for all the parks? Do you want individual lightning lanes that are purchased outside of Genie Plus? So You can buy Genie Plus and still not get lightning lanes for certain attractions like Rise of the Resistance because they're individually purchased lightning lanes. So it adds additional complexity, you know, depending on what you're going to do. But I could imagine that there's probably a lot of people who didn't buy a park hopper ticket who said, you know, I'm paying for this and I'm only going to one park. It You know, it doesn't necessarily make sense. So this makes it a little bit. This makes it make a little bit more sense uh, if you're just going to one park.
1: Yeah, I can imagine that this is, like you were saying, better for people who know what they're doing, but again, it adds a little bit more complexity.
0: All right, so let's jump back into our main story this week, the Sherman brothers. So the Sherman brothers are Robert and Richard Sherman. Uh, Robert was born in 1925, and Richard was born in 1928. Uh, Richard is still alive. Robert sadly passed away in 2012. And what's interesting is actually their father, Al Sherman, was a composer as well so it kind of it runs in the family the musicality gene
1: yeah it is it's an interesting thing i think that they they actually started writing songs together because he challenged them to do that which is kind of an interesting way they
0: weren't good like he was (laughs) like i don't think you guys can write good songs and they're like well challenge accepted and i think at first they weren't that good
1: i mean that's how it always goes it's Nobody's ever spectacular at anything when they start it.
0: But yeah, it's just interesting that his father was like, "Oh, you think you can do this? Go ahead."
1: Yeah, so it's really interesting how you know their father was this musician, and so in 1951, so they would have been roughly they, like in their 20s. Yeah, so they're e- not early the to mid 20s yep. age. But he challenged them to write like a song together. Or write songs. Well, yet. I think
0: they wanted to. Like, I think they said, "Like, hey, we think we can do this." And then, yeah, he kind of like threw down the challenge.
1: He was probably like, "Oh yeah, you you can. You think what I do so easy? Yeah, why don't yeah you go ahead. Yeah, and do Yeah, exactly." It? <laughs> I think
0: that's kind of what it was. It's, and it's interesting too because you know his their father was a composer. Um, and there's actually an interesting story that he got his first royalty check for one of the the more popular songs that he wrote the day after Robert was born. And so he just had a son. Needed money for the hospital bills. And he got his first royalty check that kind of covered everything.
1: Yeah, and for those of you who might be like, well, "What's the song?" It's called. It was called "Save Your Sorrow." So that was that's kind of an interesting thing. Like, I wonder how much he got paid because I know now if you have a child, it's like like twenty grand. in well, hos- I w- hospital bills. Yeah, and I wonder if that's some
0: of it too. Like, I can't imagine being a composer in the twenties and thirties paid a lot. And I almost wonder if like the fact that they were like, "Oh, we want to write songs," was kind of like almost like challenging them because maybe you know sometimes like you don't want your kids to do the same thing you do because you struggled and you kind of want them to go do something better and it's almost something like that of you know it's a decent career but you know maybe it was some of that too but yeah so you know their mid-20s they started writing again none of the songs were that popular or great I think they they had some success but not the crazy successful.
1: Right. And they didn't really catch fire until seven years later in 1958. Then Robert founded a music company called Music World Corporation, and they had their first top 10 hit with Tall Paul, which was sung by a mous- musketeer, Judy Harriet. So that name to me doesn't really ring a bell, but the next name will, because then later it was covered by Annette Punicello, which i feel like if anybody knows a mouseketeer that's not britney spears justin timberlake or like christine aguilar yeah i would think most you people probably Annette.
0: don't even know those people were mouseketeers at this point like britney spears and stuff i don't think you think of them as musketeers, but yeah i feel like everybody knows i feel like your 90s kids you I, know like I, yeah but i think even that like you kind of forget that a lot of them were you know, yeah Um, but yeah, I think, I feel like everybody knows, uh, Annette Funicello. So they're writing songs for a while, but yeah, with tall Paul, that was their first top 10 hit. And it's, it's so funny, like reading some of these older song names, like the one you mentioned that their father, Al wrote, save your sorrow. This one's called tall Paul. Um, like they're just very like basic (laughs) sounding names. Um, you know, the, the next one that they had some success with was in uh, 1960 and it's called you're 16. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> it's just like stating facts. Um, some of this stuff. So, Hey, who's Paul? Well, he's tall. We'll call a song. Tall Paul is well, like little, <laughs> how old are you? You're 16. Right.
1: I mean, write A declarative sentence. And that's going to be your, your sentence. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be your, your, um, song lyric or your song. Title.
0: Yeah, but but your sixteen was actually probably one of their more successful ones because that one was actually featured in the film American Graffiti, which was directed by George Lucas, who later sold Lucasfilm to Disney. So kind of a, a little bit of a Disney tie-in um, there down the road. But I think again they're they're starting to build on their success. And so now they're starting to be used in uh, feature film.
1: Yeah. So the song was originally sung by a rockabilly singer whose name was Johnny Burnett. Um, but later on, and I'm assuming this is the one that was in the, the film, it was recorded by Ringo Starr. So that's a name that is a household name. So that's pretty that's pretty interesting that it was recorded by somebody of that stature.
0: So all of these successes starting to be used in, in feature films, again, some songs sung by Mouseketeers, this all kind of caught the attention of Walt Disney. And he hired them as uh, one of their staff writers. And it, it became a very successful relationship. Mm-hmm. I and mean, there's definitely a lot of footage. If you've watched some of the documentaries and the histories on Disney Plus, the, the Sherman brothers are in there a lot. Um, yep. Walt, you know, spoke very highly of them. They had a great working relationship. I mean, we'll get into, again, all the movies and theme parks and everything that they worked on with Disney. But they actually wrote uh, with, you know, working with Walt and everything and some of the other movies they did, they wrote more musical scores than any other songwriters in history.
1: Which is almost harder hard for me to believe because I feel like Hans Zimmer at this point has written so many musical scores that like he literally does every movie that comes out and I don't know how old he is, but he's gotta be pretty old at this point. And
0: that's what I'm saying. Like it, it's insane the just the volume of scores and songs and things they wrote. And they I feel like they're not a household name in the same way that John Williams is or Hans yeah. Zimmer is. And I think it's it's somewhat because, you know, they wrote songs. Like John Williams isn't writing Musical songs. He's writing scores. scores he's and worried, he's writing... It, it's whoa. it's orchestra pieces to Yeah, I was going to gonna so, say
1: orchestra. Like, right. it, this is... They have something different because they're, like, more like songs, so... And, and I feel like in our culture, we value the singers or maybe the song itself over the people who wrote the music, which I think maybe, you know, is obviously to a fault because they're the ones responsible for... Birthing it basically, so I think it's 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 understandable that they were passed over, but I don't think it's an excuse that they were passed over because, yeah, people should know who they are.
0: Yeah, but but it is it is interesting of of how we view that kind of as moviegoers that like you go to a movie of something like you know Star Wars and it's like that music is so iconic in there, but if somebody has a song in a movie, like you don't necessarily know who wrote that song, you know, like right, like yeah. they don't get. The same credit that, again, these these big name um, like the people singers. that do the scores are. So it, it's interesting because the Sherman Brothers, a lot of their stuff, they wrote the songs for a lot of the movies. So the Disney musicals, you know, they kind of came up with these catchy tunes, but y- you don't remember that you know the song. Like you would know all of these songs, but you may not know that the Sherman Brothers wrote it. So it's it's very interesting. But again, just a prolific career uh, with Disney. And in 1961, the first song they actually wrote for uh, a Disney was called the Strummin' Song, which was used by Annette Funicello in the made for TV movie The Horse Masters. And I just want to mention this real quick, because I was like, what kind of movie? Again, <laughs> what are they naming these movies? The Horse Masters. So The Horse Masters was actually a two part TV movie that was made for the Magic World of Disney TV show. And according to the summary on IMDb, it simply says, a group of young people do a course in horsemanship in England.
1: That sounds like it would be a smash hit today. I mean, again,
0: <laughs> like the 60s, the, what passed for a movie is, is hysterical or a title for a song. It's like, well, we're going to call this the Horse Masters. What do these kids do? Well, they go to England and just learn about horses. I mean, what what a movie.
1: Well, I will say- wonder if that's
0: on Disney Plus, we should check that one out.
1: Yeah, we should. I, I will say, like, Simpler Time, they are- they are creating this this fiction of these people going to this foreign land, England, when probably not so many people traveled there. So I feel like the experience of that movie would just be like, oh, look, these children get to live out this amazing thing, and I can live vicariously through them. That
0: is true. It, it was a time when... Like
1: Instagram didn't exist. Yeah,
0: you couldn't travel a lot. You didn't have Instagram. so. It would seem somewhat magical that people, that young people, do a course in horsemanship in England. But I mean, yet- that sounds
1: kind of fun to me. I, I, not today, I probably wouldn't watch something like that, but I don't know. I could see it.
0: I, I would be interested to watch that made-for-TV movie. But that was the first song they wrote for Disney uh, on TV. The first one that was featured in a Disney movie was the Medfield Fight Song, and that was in the Absent-Minded Professor. And so that was the first Disney movie. I, I think what's interesting. Too, about their work with Disney. And from like reading some interviews that the the Sherman brothers did, they they really talked about it. it seemed like what would happen is Walt would come to them and say, Hey, have you ever heard of this? Like, have you ever heard of the jungle book? Have you ever heard about this book about a magical nanny? Whatever. Like he would just be <laughs> like, Hey, have you guys ever heard of this? And they'd be like, Oh, no yes or no and you know they'd be like oh hey, read it and then give me your thoughts and then he'd just be like okay what are your thoughts on it like what kind of song would you write and then his response it seemed like for most of it which seemed to, like this was like the high praise what you were going for he would just say that'll work <laughs> i mean it seemed to be like most of the stuff they they talked about like well how did you do and we'll get into some of this like you know mary poppins is a big one the jungle book and it seemed to be walt would just come to them one day and they'd be like hey have you ever heard of this what do you like Give me a song for this, and be like, "Okay, that's good," <laughs> and, and like they would just move on, which which seems like a kind of crazy thing. When you hear about stories of Walt Disney, like when he did Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, he acted out the entire movie in almost, front of the animators. It seems too back, yeah. Walt Disney, yeah. He he did the entire movie, every scene for the animators. So basically you know, they knew exactly what was going to happen. They just had to animate it. Um, but whenever he's doing these movies with them, he's just like, Oh yeah, that's good. We'll put that one in the well, movie. I,
1: I wonder, I mean, I bet that that kind of speaks to his trust in them as well. Whereas Walt maybe felt like, hey, I'm a creative. Hey, I'm a storyteller. I I know this and I can drive this and it needs to be this big thing. And then when he's listening to the songs, he's just like gut instinct. That sounds good. That'll work. I don't know a whole lot about, you know, what you should do with your, the musical notes and stuff, but it sounds good to my ear. So I trust you. Yeah,
0: that's a good point. Um, so let's talk about some of the the bigger movies. I mentioned Mary Poppins, so we'll start there. Um, because that is definitely probably one of the more well-known uh, movies and songs they wrote the songs for Mary Poppins. They actually won two Academy Awards for Mary Poppins for their music there.
1: One of the songs that they wrote for Mary Poppins was Feed the Birds, which was Walt's favorite song. And Walt would actually just like call Richard Sherman in like to his office to play it for him like he he enjoyed it so much and the kind of the interesting part about this song is that when Walt Disney Studios Offices were restored in 2015, they actually invited Richard Sherman to come and he played Feed the Birds. And he said, quote, the piano started rapping and started beating time. So I guess it just started making noises that the piano should not be making. And then the woman who played Jane Banks uh, from Mary Poppins, her name's Karen Dodice, said that the lights were flickering All of the heads of the studio were there. The people were organized. The event were mortified. We went, don't worry, that's Walt. He's joining in. Walt was completely present. So that's kind of a cool little, I don't know, I feel like Haunted Mansion-esque story about this song being so important to walt that even when they redid the studios his ghost even maybe enjoyed it and was was playing along with it with the song
0: yeah and i think it you know it's interesting that walt's favorite song was feed the birds from yeah. mary poppins or so many it others
1: it's a sadder song popular
0: song yeah and i think he he kind of liked that and and yeah, to your point, he would always have Richard kind of come play it, and I think they were you know kind of taken that that was you know kind of his favorite song out of that. So some of the other movies they worked on, um, besides Mary Poppins, they did uh, songs for The Jungle Book, The Aristocats, uh, The Original Parent Trap, uh, Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh and bed knobs and broomsticks.
1: And it is notable they did not write bare necessities. That's the I think that's the only one from The Jungle Book they did not write, but yeah they they wrote they wrote I want to be like you, which is one of the biggest songs from that movie. So again, it just shows how far reaching cuz I think that that's probably one The Jungle Book is not a movie that I particularly like love. I think it's just because it wasn't released during when I was a kid, but that song I think is probably one of the hidden bangers like if that came on my radio i can't turn it off i want to sing it so it's so good and it kind of attests to how talented they
0: are no definitely and what's interesting in this time too because you know there's a there's a bit of a gap between um, the jungle book which is 1967 and the aristocats in 1970 and they actually left the company shortly after Walt's death in 1966. So The Jungle Book came out a little bit after that, but but they left the company uh, after Walt's death but and did some other movies. So they actually did uh, music for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang in 1968, uh, but they ended up coming back in 1970 to work on The Aristocats uh, and some of these other movies. And one of the other things I kind of found while researching this was during this time, too, whenever they were kind of they went off working as like freelance uh, writers and they did end up coming back to Disney that Robert and Richard had a strained relationship in private that they kind of realized they wanted to do different things. Robert wanted to write novels and Richard wanted to stick with music. And so they didn't really talk to each other much personally. They still worked uh, professionally because obviously they wrote, uh, songs for many movies and many theme park attractions after this privately, they had a very strained relationship and actually their sons did a documentary about this uh, a few years ago that actually talked about how, you know, they grew up as cousins because they both lived near each other, but that their fathers would never talk. Like they really never interacted much Mm. other than when they had to, to write songs because they knew they worked so well together that they they knew they needed to continue to work professionally, uh, but privately they they had a very strained relationship for many, many years. Like a blessing and a curse. I feel like this is sort of the,
1: what you hear about with boy bands, (laughs) like, because you think about it, like they're so dynamic together, but then because they realize that it's very difficult to split off and for them to be taken seriously individually, that it almost kind of spoils the relationship because people put them in that box
0: yeah and this became again Robert didn't want to write music he wanted to go he wanted to do other things he wanted to write novels he wanted to kind of branch out uh, and Richard wanted to stick with music and that caused the friction but again they they knew they were still so good together that they would still work professionally Um, but yeah just kind of in privately didn't necessarily talk as much as they had beforehand yeah
1: it's it's really kind of Strange, but understandable.
0: Right. And then with working with Walt Disney, obviously doing well on movies, as we know, if you were good at anything, Walt pulled you into the theme parks in one way or the other. So he pulled the Sherman brothers into the theme parks as well. So in 1963, he had a little attraction that he needed a song for. Uh, it's called The Enchanted Tiki Room. So the yep, Sherman Brothers that's right, actually everybody. Wrote-
1: Hang on one second. Let, let everyone let that sink in in case they didn't know it already. So you already knew Small World. I was going to say, you talked that. about
0: Small World being we the year one. know that. This is the much better song.
1: I mean, I would agree. But I don't feel like... I feel like this is one that's like a mainstay of people who love Disney. Like This is the ride that I have to go on, and I don't even understand why. I'm just magnetically drawn to go to the Tiki Room every time we go, and I always have to go there. And it's because I want to hear those darn birds sing about being in the Tiki Room.
0: Yeah. So they wrote the Tiki 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 Room, uh, which is the song for the Enchanted Tiki Room. And then in 1964, they wrote a few songs for attractions at the World's Fair. So we've already mentioned It's a Small World, which was written for the World's Fair. But they also wrote, which is another.
1: Fantastic song. Yeah,
0: and this is getting a lot more playtime in the parks. Yeah. Like they were playing it at Disneyland when we went
1: where this ride isn't even
0: Exactly. At. But it's it's a great song and I feel like it's getting the love it deserves. And again, yes. I still feel like, you know, the song, but you don't know that the Sherman brothers actually wrote it, but and this there- is
1: not a ride that I particularly love, but it's a great song.
0: Yeah. And it's a great quote. You see it on t-shirts, there's a great big, beautiful tomorrow written for the carousel of progress was also written by the Sherman brothers. It does not end with that though. So like you think, okay, they wrote the tiki room. They wrote small world. They wrote great, big, beautiful tomorrow for carousel of progress. Those are three iconic attractions, three iconic songs. Like, Again, you wouldn't, those attractions would not be as good if you didn't have those songs. Like they could have just stopped there and just ended. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're doing the next one. So, so after that, they kind of went on a run because, um, again, they kind of left Disney for a little bit, but then they came back and they did a ton of stuff for Epcot. So, they actually wrote uh, the Epcot Center, the World Showcase March. Which was when you first came into Epcot, which you were just humming one little spark yep. for Figment. Again, which, again, how like it just it's blows your mind all of these songs that they wrote. Basically, every song that you love when you go and ride the rides and you can't stop singing it, the Sherman Brothers wrote it. Just yeah. assume they did it. Yeah,
1: it's pretty it's a pretty safe assumption there. Um, unless you're riding like Guardians and it's classic rock. It's, I mean, if it's I, not if, if I, I didn't the know,
0: like if I didn't see the making of Frozen 2 to know that they didn't write the songs for Frozen, <laughs> I would have been like, maybe they did let it go. Who knows?
1: <laughs> well, and I think it's it's just, I don't it's so good. Like there's they're so good. Um, one thing I wanted to point out was if you've never seen it, there's a there's an Instagram, I'm sure it's on Tik TikTok video of it's a small world and one little spark and they're kind of played on top of each other. And they're essentially the same song, um, so if you haven't seen that and you're curious, maybe put like Google that because it, it, so it's they're just written by the same yeah people. written That's by the why. same people, similar musical notes and and similar kind of you know upbeat melody that makes it so they can be played on top of each other and basically sound the same.
0: Right. They also wrote the soundtrack for CommuniCore, which was in Epcot as well. So they did a lot of stuff whenever Epcot opened, uh, and they wrote Journey Through Inner Space, which was for Disney's first Omnimover attraction. Um, and also, what's interesting, and it makes a lot of sense because Disney was working on Epcot at the same time they were working on Tokyo Disneyland, but they also wrote some music for Tokyo Disneyland as well. They wrote Meet the World, which was a reverse. It, it was an attraction over Tokyo Disneyland, but it was like reverse of Carousel of Progress. That so, blew my mind, by the way, when I wrote, read it. So you sat in the middle of it. And then the stage moved around you and it was focused on Japan's history and their engagement with the world. But they wrote uh, the song for that attraction as well.
1: One other thing that after Robert actually died, and I know we're jumping around a little bit in history, but after he died, Richard Sherman wrote Kiss Goodnight for Disneyland Forever, the, the night show. So, I mean, just so many wonderful songs. And I think that part of this the reason why they were so successful, is in an interview, Richard said basically that they don't simplify songs for kids. He said, quote, Bob and I have never written down to kids. We've always written up to kids. We want them to find out if they're curious, like we were, what things mean. And again, I know I've talked about this before. I talked about this with, I think, Scar, how they chose his language and how they kind of made him use these bigger words that made you kind of aspire to having to know like and figure out what those words meant and I think that this is so important so if you're somebody who's listening who has you know kids and you don't always have to simplify for them I mean as a teacher I actually find that they it makes them almost more curious um, and teaches them to kind of ask questions so I just think that that's really a great philosophy and I think that kids always want to be older than they are anyway so it makes them sort of aspire to gain that knowledge.
0: Yeah, and I think the other thing that kind of encapsulates why their songs are so catchy and they're so well-received. In 2018, a music critic, Leonard Maltin, was at a tribute to the Sherman Brothers, and he talked about their songs, and he said, quote, The songs were always singable. They're not complex musically. And as you know, simplicity is hard to achieve. There's a big difference between simplistic and simplicity. Anybody can hum or sing them. So I think that kind of goes to tell you again it they're they're simplistic songs they're easy to remember they have catchy tunes you can not just hum any of these tunes to to your point one little spark sounds very similar to small world like they get and they're very
1: repetitious I mean, right. there's not a whole lot to them they're not like meaty songs yeah but, but that is
0: difficult to achieve sometimes it's it's not you know it it's hard to make a song catchy and and simple simple like that and easy to remember. Um, and I think that just goes to show again, that's a good way to put it of like, to your point, they're not trying to overly simplify or talk down to children, but they make the songs easy enough that they're just so catchy. You, you can't help, but, but sing them and remember them.
1: Like, I kind of feel like so a lot of their songs full fall in this interesting gray area in between like a full song and a jingle. Like they're almost designed like a jingle where it's it's short, it's catchy, but then they sort of cute, like repeat it a lot. And then, so it's longer than a jingle and becomes a song. So I don't know. I think maybe that's, I don't, I, I just that's thought a good way it to right put now. it. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. Kind of like, yeah. A extended jingle. Yeah. yeah. That kind of gets, gets caught in your head. That's a good way to put it because the, this, the songs for the attractions kind of act like a jingle. Like, in the same yeah. way a jingle is to to get you to remember a business, uh, a phone number, something they do, these songs make you remember the ride. Like, you hum, tiki, 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 mm-hmm. tiki room, and you know... Oh, the tiki room. I, I got to go to the tiki room this time. Or it's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. And you're like, you want to go on carousel progress or small nope, that world? That song
1: never makes me want to go on carousel, okay. Progress.
0: but it makes you think about it. You know what I'm saying? It does. Like, and
1: I love that song. And I have a plaque that says it in my classroom. Right. Like it, it, exactly. it's so good.
0: It does. It, it's a, it's a way to kind of quickly remember it. So yeah, that's a, a interesting way to put it. Never thought about that, but I think that's a, a good thought.
1: I didn't either, and I I'm giving myself a pat on the back right now. There you go. Good. good
0: job. <laughs> a, a couple other like just kind of quick things. Not Disney related, kind of some accolades they had. So in 1973, they became the only Americans ever to win first prize at the Moscow Film Festival uh, for Tom Sawyer, which they also wrote the screenplay for. So again, these things kind of happened in a time in between when they, wor- they, wor- they weren't working exclusively for Disney. This is after Walt's death. They were doing where they wrote some movies, they wrote some plays and things, and they had success with that. So this was one of them. The other one that I found interesting was in 1976, they wrote The Slipper and the Rose, which was a modern retelling of Cinderella. It was actually chosen as the Royal Commander performance for the queen which i think is really impressive they wrote the song score and screenplay for that so again this was them kind of branching out more than just music and so they received you know accolades in kind of both these instances and i think it's pretty uh, amazing that you get selected to perform, your performance goes in front of the queen.
1: Right. And I mean, I, I don't think we've fully mentioned this, but they also have you know your, your big time awards that people in the United States at least sort of covet. Like they have two Academy Awards, they have three Grammys, they have a BAFTA Award, five Golden Globe, a Lawrence Olivier Award, the National Medal of the Arts. Plus like they have so many nominations that it's like impossible to even go through them all.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's it's pretty amazing to kind of look back at their career. And again, I don't think it's one that people see them as household names, but they should because all of the movies they were involved in, all the theme parks they're involved in, songs that are sung all over the world. I think you know some people say that It's a Small World is the most translated song. I don't know if that's a fact or if that's something you can prove, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's just, it's in a number of languages just in the attraction as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting that they have all of that. Um, and again, to your point, like they have these, you know, jingles essentially that like everybody knows these songs, um, but they don't always necessarily, I feel like get the credit they deserve. So, uh, hopefully you know this episode helped shine some light on that maybe you found some of these things interesting you can go research a little bit more mm-hmm. yourself there's probably more songs for attractions that you may know that we <laughs> oh, didn't I'm even sure. find yeah, I was, yeah i'm
1: sure there's ones we've missed
0: yeah or you know other movies that they worked on um that aren't disney related because again they worked on a lot of you know movies and tv shows and films and things like that 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 weren't disney related but i think it was really fascinating to kind of research them and again you know we knew about some of these i knew about it's a small world i knew about It's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow, but did not realize just everything they did, how they wrote a ton of the music for Epcot, all that sort of stuff. So just really fascinating
1: yeah absolutely and if there's anybody else that you know you know of or names that you know of that of people that have been highly involved in disney that you want us to cover unsung heroes i like that so message us on instagram at enchanted ears podcast and let us know and we can definitely look into it and do an episode on it yeah
0: definitely so that wraps up the show for this week I want to thank everybody again for listening uh, if you've not done so, please leave us a rating or a review. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast. It really helps and we really appreciate it. Thanks for lending us your ears. Have a great week, everybody. And we'll see you here next Monday. Bye-bye.